Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you'd make us attentive to your voice. And would your voice be louder and more defining for us, for who we are, how we think of ourselves, than all of the lesser voices in our culture. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So if you're joining us for the first time today, we began a new series a couple weeks ago entitled Human, and we're talking together about what does it mean to be human? Who are we? Why are we here? What is life about anyway? You know, it was uh, Albert Camus, great existentialist philosopher, who uh, once said, everything has been figured out. And he was talking about all the technological advances, you know, and whatnot. He said, everything has been figured out except how to live. And so we've been talking together about how to live, what it looks like to be human. And we've been bringing this question, what does it mean to be human, into dialogue with the opening chapters of the Bible, the, the, the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. You know, I was listening to a... Um, a conversation several years ago now. It was between a professor of philosophy at Harvard whose name was Sean Kelly. He was actually the chair of the philosophy department. And he was in conversation with a New Testament scholar who I love, whose name is N.T. Wright. And they were talking together about the Bible. And it was this open forum at Harvard. And so you had these two, you know, mammoth scholars talking about the Bible. And the question was put to Sean Kelly, why he was interested in the Bible. He's a secular humanist, and he's not a Christian, not really a Bible guy, you know, and this sort of thing. And yet he's intrigued by the Bible. And he was asked why, and his answer was fascinating to me. He said, you know, um, at this stage in, in, in human history, in cultural history, he says, we in the West, we who inhabit a secular modern age, face a peculiar danger. He felt like it was among the most, uh, the, the largest threats that face our generation. And he said that this, this danger is something that was not known in previous ages. And yet it's peculiarly acute among our current modern secular age. And he says it, it, this danger goes underneath many names. He says, I, I'm a, I, I love Soren Kierkegaard. He said, Kierkegaard named it the leveling of all meaningful difference. In other words, he was afraid that in the modern age, nothing would be significant anymore. Nietzsche uh, famously referred to it as nihilism, the death of all meaning. And um, uh, the, the, the late uh, Gen X author, writer, David Foster Wallace, referred to it as a stomach-level sadness that almost everyone in his generation feels. And he says, I, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that the students I'm teaching, I'm concerned that this new secular age we inhabit, that, that nothing is going to be of any meaning anymore. And he said, so I, I, I'm going to the Bible because I feel like the Bible is a resource that can help us combat that problem. He said, when you open the Bible, you don't find a text that is... <laughs> you know, absent meaning, he says, instead, he says, you find this collection of writings that's just replete with meaning. And, and you as an individual discover that, that there's a God who cares for you, who is in covenant with you. And in this world, and, and it, this world is a significant and meaningful place, and you have an obligation and a duty to care for the world and to care for yourself. And he said, that's just a different way of understanding reality. And he said, I think if people could enter into that narrative, they might be helped. 
And so we have been entering into this narrative seeking to discover meaning. We're, we're seeking to understand who we are and what we are about in this world. Now, the specific place we're turning is the opening stories of humanity that's told to us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And it's, it's fascinating to me because in these chapters, what do you find? Well, um, you, you don't find you know, a bunch of abstract theological propositions. You don't feel this highly detailed you know, um, anthropology. Instead, what do we discover? We discover stories. And specifically today, we're going to be looking at that, that story of Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, it was the great novelist Flannery O'Connor who once quipped, a story is a way of saying something that can't be said in any other way. And it takes every word of the story to say what the meaning is. And it takes every word of the story of Adam and Eve to share, share with us what our meaning is. And some have asked, like, what kind of literature are we reading anyway? Is this myth? Is it literal history? Like, what is this anyway? You know, it, it, you know there's, there's, there's a talking snake and some magical trees. And like, what is this literature anyway? And I think the best answer to that question is what we read is, in these opening chapters, is archetypal history. Or you might say symbolic history. It's a story that is intended to speak to us truthfully about who we are and what's wrong with the human race, and yet it is replete with symbol and metaphor. In other words, in these stories, you discover our story. Uh, in these opening chapters of the first humans, we discern what it means to be human. This is not simply a story about what happened back then. It's also a story of what happens to humans now. And, and people throughout the generations in different cultures, and they spoke different languages, uniquely in these stories, they found themselves. And so I want to invite you to enter into this story and discern with me a little bit more about what it means to be human. Now, I want to highlight three features of the narrative. First, I want, to, I want you to observe uh, the man of dust. Second, the lovely garden. And thirdly, we'll see something about the dangerous tree. The man of dust, the lovely garden, and the dangerous tree. Notice first uh, the man of dust. Look at how the, the story begins. It actually doesn't begin with a man of dust. Instead, it begins with an entire field of dirt and dust. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Now stop there. You see that phrase, small plant? In the Hebrew, that implies edible plants. So we're talking about fruit trees and vegetables and cultivated fields with um, uh, grains, wheat and barley and whatnot. And he says, there's just this empty expanse, and there are no cultivated fields. There are no vegetable gardens. Why? It says, because God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So there's a divine and human reason for the lack of, of edible vegetation. On the one hand, there is no rain if the land is going to produce if the soil is going to be nutrient-dense, if it's going to have what it needs to produce these edible vegetables, it's going to need rain. But it's not only going to need uh, the, the God to send rain, it's also going to need humans 
to put their own loving care and cultivation into the soil and to develop the land and to draw out its raw potentials and to create an edible garden. And here's the point that I think the author is making. Edible gardens, edible gardens are contingent and dependent things. Anybody here try to garden? Anybody here try to do raised bed gardening? Those are needy and dependent little plots of soil. They require attention. They require sunshine and water and nutrients and fertilizer and loving care and attention. Edible gardens are contingent and dependent things. Like all living things, an edible garden cannot exist by itself. Its existence depends upon something outside of itself. Its existence depends upon rain outside of itself and sunshine outside of itself and air and and human cultivation. The edible gardens, like all things, are contingent. They cannot exist by themselves. And of course, it's not just that it depends upon the rain and the sun and the water and nutrient-dense soil and human hands to cultivate the earth. It depends on a whole lot of other things because rain and soil and um, sun and water depends upon other things in our universe. You know, scientists tell us that our life-permitting universe, along with all of its galaxies and stars and atoms and subatomic particles, and the very structure of our universe is itself contingent and dependent upon, upon what? It's dependent upon fundamental constants and quantities of the universe, each of which need to be finely tuned and dialed to an astonishingly precise value that falls within an exceedingly narrow life-permitting range. And if any of those constants, if any of those numbers were altered even slightly, even by a hair's breadth, uh, no physical interactive life could exist anywhere. There would be no stars, there would be no life, there would be no planet, there would be no chemistry, there would be no rain or sunshine or humans to work the ground or edible plants. All of reality is contingent and dependent. Listen, there's one reality that is not contingent and dependent. There is only one reality that is self-existent, that is the ground on which everything that is contingent hangs, kind of like a shadow. My shadow is always dependent upon me. Without me, there can be no shadow. You say, well, what about Peter Pan? Yeah, that's magic, you know? And, and quite frankly, naturalistic thinking about ultimately, ultimate reality is nothing more than pure magical thinking. That reality can exist. All of this contingent reality can exist, but have no absolute upon which it's grounded is absurd. It is irrational. An object with a shadow, the shadow requires the object. The existence of the contingent depends upon an absolute, a self-existing reality that the ancients, you know, the ancient philosophers like Aristotle named the unmoved mover. The Neoplatonists called the one. Of course, Christians have named the eternal self-existing God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, infinite existence, infinite being within God's self. But The edible gardens, that's a whole lot you say for edible gardens. Yeah, I know, but it's all there. The edible gardens are contingent, and they are going to demand a human creature. And as yet, the human creature is not there. And so 
The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You know, in Genesis 1, we discover that we humans, what does it mean to be human? It means to be made in the image of God. You bear the divine image. And here we discover what does it mean to be human? It means that you are dust. You are not only image of God, you are also dust of the earth. But what does that mean? I mean, is that, is that an insult? Is the Bible insulting us here? Is it like, you know, you dirty people? You know, you're like dirt. Listen, the Bible isn't insulting us. It's speaking to us about what it means to be human. To be formed of dust means that we are mortal and fragile. It means that we too, like edible plants, are contingent. We are connected to everything else in all of creation that is contingent because we too are contingent. You know, um, there's this tight connection in the Hebrew language between the human and the dirt. The word for human in Hebrew is Adam. The word for dirt is Adamah. And so there's a play on words to make that connection between humanity and dirt even closer, like human and humus or uh, the earthling and the earth. We are tied together with the ground from earth or from dirt, dust we came into the dust we shall return. You know, I, I know we often hear Christians express dismay and offense about evolutionary's claim of our common ancestry with apes. You know, the idea that we came from some monkey-like primate is an offense to our dignity as human beings. But I just want to point out that the Bible is more offensive still, you know? Our original ancestor is not an ape, but the brown mud on which that ape walked, you know? Unless you get the crazy idea that Adam is uniquely dust, uh, the psalmist says, no, Adam's story is your story. What you learn about Adam is also something you're learning about you. He says, for he, speaking of God, knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Dust means mortality. Dust means frailty. Dust means that like edible plants and living things, our existence is dependent upon something else to donate us life. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And someone says, well, wait a second. I thought that weren't human, didn't death come after the fall? And how does that whole thing work out? Listen, the presence of the tree of life in the garden is proof that immortality was never inherently inside of Adam and Eve. It was outside. It was available, but immortality was not a possibility that lay within the humans. It was available by the grace of God, but, but we are mortal. We're gonna die. None of us gets out of here alive. I don't mean this room, I mean like... <laughs> now, of course, we're more than dust. We're not just dust, according to this passage. We're not just molded, inanimate clay we are breathed into dust, breathed into by the life-giving breath of God. You are dust suspended, suspended by the life and grace and creative mercies and power of God. By his breath and power, we are held together every moment of every day. And, and look, we are like the rest of creation in this. You and I are not self-existence. Our existence depends for its life 
every moment, on every day, on something outside of us. In fact, I mean, think just a couple examples about how this is true. You know, after the creature is, the human creature is breathed into, um, he still can't live apart from eating. And so God causes the earth to produce trees that produce food, and then he's going to have to work the land so that he can have food to eat. I mean, part of what it means to be human is to eat. Amen? I mean, that's a good part of being human, right? Like, I like to eat, you know? But look, eating is not just delicious. It's necessary if you're not going to die. You have to constantly take something outside of yourself and put it inside of yourself if you're going to keep living. Now, maybe this is obvious. Maybe this goes without saying. But this is different from God. God doesn't need to eat. You know, Israelite worship is described in the book of Leviticus in different ways, but in one part it says that it says, quote, as the smoke rose up, it rises as a pleasant aroma to the Lord. Now, that might sound like a minor detail, but it is significant. It's important because in contrast to the other pagan and Near Eastern gods who are basically glorified humans, the Lord, the true and living God, doesn't need to eat. He only smells the sacrifice. And again, it might just sound like a throwaway detail, but it makes all of the difference in the world that God doesn't eat, he only smells, because this is one of the essential differences between God and the other ancient Near Eastern gods, and it's, it's one of the essential differences between us and God. We need stuff from the outside to come in to sustain our life, but God does not. God is self-generating, self-existent, self-sufficient, self-governed, self-reliant, self-ruled, self-supported, and you and I are not. Or think about a second example. You know, the human creature is not only going to need to eat to sustain life, the human creature is also going to need friends to sustain life. You know, part of what we need to stay alive is human community. And God's verdict over the human creature was, it is not good for him to be alone. Let's make a partner that's suitable for him. And listen, it's not good for you to be alone either. We're going to talk about this one in a couple weeks. But, but let me just say this. The same statement could not be made for God. It would never be, be said of God, it is not good for God to be alone. Listen, God didn't create us because he was lonely. God didn't create us because he was bored. God didn't create you because he has a human-shaped vacuum in his heart that only you can fill. No, the God revealed in Scripture is infinite fullness and infinite joy and infinite love and infinite existence and, and being within God's self. God needs nothing. He depends on no one. God, again, is self-existent, self-generating. God, God, God is utter fullness within God's self, but everything else is contingent upon something. And so here's what we learn from this. Life, all of life is contingent upon God. Life, human life non-human life, all of life, your life and my life, every moment of every day is contingent and dependent upon God. It's dependent upon everything outside of us that ultimately, too, depends upon God. You know, the Oxford Dictionary defines contingent like this, quote, occurring or existing only if circumstances 
Certain circumstances are the case. It's contingent if, if, if it can only occur or happen if certain circumstances are the case. And listen, your life and my life and all of existence can only happen if, if the condition of a self-existent being who is the ground of all reality exists. God is the one infinite and exhaustible, inexhaustible wellspring of all that is. God is infinite being, infinite consciousness, infinite bliss. He is the one from whom and by whom and in whom we are. He is our alpha and our omega. He is our beginning and our middle and our end, without whom we could not exist for another second. He is the absolute upon which the contingent is always utterly dependent and all things, not only in this universe, but all of the laws and physical conditions that produce the universe, all physical laws, all quantum events, and the possibility of all laws and events that exist receive their being continuously from him and without him, they cannot exist. So we are utterly dependent and contingent. We are dependent upon food and drink to satiate our thirst. We are contingent upon air to come in and oxygenate our, our bodies every second of the day. You are contingent upon beauty to make life worth living. You are contingent upon meaning outside of yourself to give your life purpose. You and I are dependent, contingent beings. What does it mean to be human? It means you are suspended dust contingent on the life breath of God. Now let's draw another feature of the narrative. How are you guys doing? All right, let's keep going. Second, I want you to notice from the narrative, not only the, the man of dust, but secondly, I want you to notice the lovely garden. So after God plays the role of potter, who gets down on his knees and fashions the man from the dirt, God now plays the role of gardener, and he plants this beautiful garden. Look at what it says. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. It's interesting. The word Eden, it means paradise or delight. This is a garden of utter and complete delight and joy. And where does God put the human creature? He put the man whom he had formed in that garden of delight and joy. You were made for joy. You were made for delight. Part of the primal reason for our existence is to enjoy this beautiful world as gift and grace that God has called into being. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree. And I love this. The trees that spring up, notice they are aesthetically pleasing as well as beneficial and useful. He says they're pleasant to the sight and they are good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, within the garden, there is so much that brings delight. There is the best of foods, and there is the best of drinks. You know, I was kind of thinking about whatever beverages they had there, but it had to have been like the Entwash drink that the Ents drunk in um, The Lord of the Rings. Okay, um, we'll move on from that. We'll just... But there, there's delicious food. There is beauty to behold. 
There's meaningful work. He's cultivating the ground. And of course, um, there, there is this woman that God fashions from the side of the man and brings it to the human creature. And, and the man breaks out in song. He's like, that's flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. I mean, he breaks out in poetry. He's so excited. I mean, he'd been looking at aardvarks all day and God brings him this <laughs> amazingly beautiful woman. He's like, ah, the woman and the food and the trees. And it's, ah, 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 ah. you know, but listen, the delight of all delights, the paradise of all paradise is that in this garden, the very infinite beauty that is the source of everything we deem beautiful was present in that garden. Infinite goodness was present in that garden. You know, it's interesting, scholars have pointed out that there are parallels between the Garden of Eden and the later temple in Israel. In the temple, if you walked into the structure where the Jews believed that the presence of God dwelt and you looked around, you know what you saw on the walls in the temple? Built into the sides and sketched in gold, you saw trees and cherubim. Where do you find trees and cherubim but in the Garden of Eden? And then, and then, Rivers flow out of the Garden of Eden to, to nourish the rest of the earth. And, and later, the, there's a vision in Ezekiel 47 of a river going forth from the temple, and it goes out and it brings healing to all of the rest of the earth. In the book of Revelation, again, the, 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 the temple, which is God himself, finally is, is present in humanity, and rivers of healing go out for the healing of the nations, and the vocation of the human creatures in the garden was to watch and to keep. Those two verbs are described of the work of priests in the temple. And, and most centrally in, in, in Genesis 3, we get a vision of God and he is walking in the garden in the cool of the day as if this was the place where his presence resided all the time. The very heaven of heavens, the delight of delights, the Eden of Eden, the very cream of the place was that here they could engage in relationship with God. In fact, uh, scholars have, have noted that in Revelation 2 verse 7, the tree of life is symbolic of fellowship or relationship with God. And what are we seeing here? Listen, our life is not just contingent and dependent upon the God who is the infinite source of all that is. Your life is not only dependent upon God. Listen, you were made to be in relationship with God. You and I were made to enjoy, this, this is what was, the garden was about. It was about. It was about a whole lot, but it was about centrally fellowship and delight in God. You know, the idea that humans were made of dirt and clay, it was not uncommon in the ancient world. There's a couple other stories that associate the formation of humans with dirt and clay. Uh, there, there's one famous uh, the story, one of the Mesopotamian myths uh, describe um, a god being killed. We talked about this last time, but the god's blood was mingled with dirt and then they formed the human creature because they were tired of working and they wanted the, the human to be their slave and do their work for him. And then when the, when the human was created, the gods all spit on him as if an act of contempt or disdain, like take that, you slave that's gonna serve us. Note how different the description is in Genesis. The human creature is formed. 
And the very face of God, as it were, in anthropomorphic symbolic language, comes so close and breathes into the nostrils, the breath of life, comes so close to the face of the human creature that you could almost say that humans were created with a divine kiss. As an act of divine love, God bringing this human creature into being for relationship. Listen, there is an ache in the human soul that can ultimately only be satisfied and met in a relationship with the living God. You know, so many of our best thinkers have, have, have sought to put this into words. You know, the, the, the great Christian theologian, St. Augustine, in his confessions put it like this. He said, thou hast made us for yourself and our hearts are truly restless until they find their rest in thee. And Pascal talked about a, a God-shaped vacuum in the human heart that only God himself can fill. C.S. Lewis talked about this inconsolable ache for joy that can only be met in infinite joy that's given in God. And, and Judas Solovitz talked about an, an assuageable longing for holding that can only be met by the love of God. You were made for God. And listen, your life is gonna feel like there's something missing. There's something that, it can't be filled with, with the stuff of earth. I mean, the you were made for all kinds of stuff on earth, for delight in creation, for, for work and for human community and all of that, that's all good. But below the surface, below it all, you and I were made for relationship with God. And so we are contingent, we are dependent creatures. We see from the man of dust and in the garden, this lovely garden where the presence of God dwelt, we see that we are made for relationship with God. But I want you to note one third or third and final feature of the narrative. We saw the man of dust and the lovely garden. And now I want you to note something about the dangerous tree. Look at what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. Now, we might want a less dangerous garden that doesn't have such dangerous trees, but no such garden is given because God has not created a world where humans will not have freedom and volition to choose God versus not choosing God. And so God establishes a limit. Now, a couple of things I want you to note, like, we're like, what is this tree that's forbidden anyway? And I know we, we, our mind first goes to this tree and we want to think about the tree of prohibition. But before we get there, can you just note for a second all of the trees that are permitted? You know, so much ink has been spilled. So many sermons have been preached on this tree that you shall not eat because the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But this is not the only tree in the garden. There are so many other trees that are beautiful to behold that are good for food. There is so much goodness and so much delight in this garden that you are invited to enjoy. You were made to enjoy that. And yet, and yet, there is this tree 
The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann suggests the importance of the tree is not the tree. The importance of the tree is that it indicates a limit and a boundary that the creator has put on his creation. In other words, you and I do not exist of ourselves. We are contingent and dependent. And we were not made simply for ourselves. And we do not inhabit a world of our own making. This is God's world. And the tree of prohibition established the reality is that we must live in God's world on God's terms. In other words, you were made to live under the authority of God. Now, I think perhaps this is among the most unpopular of ideas in modern secular America today. You know, what we, what we think and the narrative we tell, and, and we retell this story again and again and again. I mean, think about all of our Disney movies. You know, what, what's the narrative that's told is, you know, you're, you're being held back. You know, the tradition has kept you in, but you just need to discover yourself and determine for yourself who you are and what life is about. And so, you know, now, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a princess who's in the sea, but you were made for land if you could just get out of the, the ocean. Or, and now you're, you're on an island, Moana, and you just need to get out to the sea and become your true self or your, 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 your Elsa. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I mean, think about, you guys don't know what it's like to be a parent of a five-year-old singing that song. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Behold, I'm free. You know what's ironic? Yeah, of course, religious communities have made up prohibitions that God himself did not make. Religious communities have used God as a tool of manipulation and coercion and control over human life. No doubt about that at all. But make no mistake, the alternative to the true and good rule of God, the boundaries of God living within creaturely limitations is not freedom, it is a different kind of slavery. When you say there, I want to be self-ruled and I want to be self-governing and I want to be self-existing. Number one, it's a lie. You're not. You're dependent for every moment of every day on something outside of yourself. It is just not true. But listen, it doesn't lead to the good life either. You know what a ruleless home creates for children? If there's no rule for, like kids are not happy in rules without it, in homes without any rules. You know what that makes people? You know what it makes children? It creates anxiety. Because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, maybe I did it. You know, the modern secular America is the most anxious group of people we've ever seen in human history. Like anxiety is our problem because we don't, we, we don't have a tradition. We don't have a past. We don't have a future. Everything is dependent upon you. And look, if everything is dependent upon you, like that makes me nervous and anxious. Doesn't it make you anxious? Friends, the rule of God is not bondage. It is gift and grace. It is the generosity of God that he gives us limits and boundaries and says, here's how to live in my world. You know, 
God's rule in this world, though, must always be balanced by these three words in this text that always must be held together. Prohibition must be connected to freedom, human freedom that God has given us and, which, and must be connected to vocation. God has given you vocation and calling. God has entrusted you and me. He's given us purpose and meaning in this world. He has called us to go out and to enjoy his world and yet collected together with freedom and vocation are limits and boundaries that are also grace and gift. And so may you, may I, may we learn from this narrative about what it looks like to be human. It means we are contingent and dependent upon God. It means we were made for a relationship with God, for delight and joy in God. And we were made to live under the authority of God, to submit our lives to God. This time I wanna invite our band to come up. And I wanna close by just saying this, you know, we, we mentioned last time that we humans have not done human very well, have we? We have lied to ourselves. We've told ourselves that we can live independent life apart from God. And we have, we have fooled ourselves that our ultimate life and satisfaction can be found in lesser gods, things that we prioritize over God, but it will never satisfy. And we have thrown off the rule of God as something that is enslaving and hard when there you will find life. And we've, we've thrown out the authority of God and we've turned to these other things and we, we have become enslaved. You know, though our story ends here, the story of Genesis doesn't end here, does it? They eat that fruit and they find themselves in exile from their true home, which is our story. We are in exile from our true home. And the good news of the gospel is that the God who was present in the garden, who called out to Adam and Eve, where are you? What have you done? Where are you going? That God who called to the original couple has never stopped calling out to the human race. His heart of love has never stopped beating for you. And over the long course of human history, God has been developing a story. It's been building up to this moment where God who walked in the garden with his people would come and enter into creation in the person of his son, Jesus. And he would bear the curse for our sin. He would, he would, he would bear in his body the darkness that separates us from God so that we can be brought back into relationship with God. And he would come announcing the kingdom, saying there is a better way of being human. There's a better way to live. Come and know life. Come and know healing. Come and know salvation. Come and learn to be human again.